Good morning, everyone. No, stop that. I'm going to use my mom voice on you guys. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Ariel Stevens. My family and I are fourth floor members here at Rooftop. We've been here for about four years. Uh, I'm a mom, a writer, a barista, all of those things. Um, I've done some teaching here at Rooftop in the kids' ministry um, and also in a small group setting. And then this past summer, we did a series called The Gospel According to Pixar, in which we dissected Pixar movies to kind of find uh, some gospel themes in those. Uh, That was my first time uh, preaching here, and I guess that I just didn't insult Pastor Matt enough in that first sermon, and he asked me to come back during the series in James, so I'll just have to work on that so he stops bothering me. Well, who doesn't know the story of Snow White? Snow White, deemed the most beautiful in the land, is torturous to the evil queen, her stepmother, who is just full of envy. So she devises a plan, poisons an apple, dresses up as a peddler woman, and entices Snow White to eat it. Now, there are many movie versions and variations of Snow White, but in each one of them, this scene is always the same. The apple is always portrayed uh, as beautiful, delicious, juicy, but never for what it actually is, poison. And in all of them, Snow White takes and eats, and dies, and falls under a curse. Now, it should be known that, to me, Snow White is actually kind of bland and boring as a Disney princess. Um, When I was little, I actually really loved Snow White. I had the coolest Snow White costume, and I went running through the forest, like being pretending to be chased by the huntsman. But as I got older, um, I realized that she's kind of unrelatable. She's kind of naive. She's just like really sugary sweet, right? The only thing that she really has going for her is that she has animals that clean her house. And so if I could, you know, tap into that, that would be great. Um, But now Disney is actually very famous for sanitizing folktales like Snow White and removing some of the more gruesome details and descriptions. But what stands out now is that juicy apple, right? In the original German tale, Snow White knows that the queen is out to get her because the queen tries three times to kill her. So when the queen comes knocking at the door, Snow White knows the risk, but she opens the door and takes the apple anyway. So in literature, uh, we actually see fruit that are symbolic of many things, um, fertility, abundance, pleasure, knowledge, In Greek and Norse mythology, there are like tons of fruit-filled stories. Uh, Zeus and Hera in Greek mythology receive a fruit tree uh, on their wedding day. In Norse mythology, we have the goddess of youth who has golden apples and passes them all out to everyone to help sustain their youth. Even in Genesis, we see the creation story. We see the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and they are both fruit-filled. But fruit can also represent something else, temptation. It's forbidden in the creation story, yet it looks desirable, enticing, and delicious, but it's poison. Now, Snow White is clearly tricked, which just adds to the list of reasons why she's just the worst Disney princess. But when we give in to temptation, who's to blame? Is it the Wicked Queen? Or is it something else? Who or what is really responsible for the temptations that we face and often submit to? 
Now, I don't have to tell you that we're tempted every day, and it can get pretty exhausting, right? Are we tricked too? Or what is really going on? And what do we do about it? So we're in a series here at Rooftop called Wise Guy, in which we're going through the book of James. Now, James was a half uh, brother of Jesus and a prominent leader at the church in Jerusalem. And he writes this letter and he borrows teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was given by Jesus in the Gospels. And then he also borrows from the Old Testament, from the prophets and the Proverbs, to compose a sermon to comfort and challenge and convict the Jews. The goal of James is to turn our faith into wise and godly living. So godly living looks a lot like paying attention to our finances, prayer, our perspective on suffering, and many other things. And today we're going to touch on everyone's favorite topic, sin and temptation. Now, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're a room full of sinners. James actually calls us sinners in his letter rather aggressively. So even though James touches on topics that are really very practical, you might be surprised to learn that how we deal with our sin and temptation is very practical as well. So our verse for today is going to be from chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. But before we read it, I want to set up some context for you. This passage is actually connected to chapter 12, where James writes about persevering under trials and gaining the crown of life. Now he's moving on to a different topic, temptation. Temptation, just the desire or the urge to do something that's wrong. So read along with me in your Bibles, or the verse will be up on the screen for those who need it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now remember, in the previous passage, James is telling us that persevering through trials leads to life. But he's switching gears here and talking about what leads to death, giving into sin and temptation. He's making a comparison here. But not only that. James is making a clear distinction between who we are and who God is. We are responsible for our sin. God is not. Now the word for attempt uh, in Greek is parisio. I think I'm saying that right. If any of you know Greek, feel free to correct me. But sometimes it can be translated as test. So when you're actually looking in your Bible and you see that this word might actually be tested instead of tempting, that's because they kind of mean the same thing. So how do we actually know whether to use tempt or test? So the key to understanding the distinction between using that word lies in the motivation of the one doing the tempting or the testing. In other words, God does not tempt us, but he can and does test us. How are you all at taking tests? I'm really terrible. I hate taking tests. My palms get sweaty. I get nauseous. I don't like doing it at all. I read a children's book one time that was supposed to help, and their encouragement was, well, you don't have to take a test. You get to take a test. 
No, that doesn't help me at all. First of all, I do have to take this test because I have to pass this class. And secondly, just because I get to doesn't make me want to and I don't want to. Modern testing, though, is just to prove how much we know up here. But biblical testing is different. We see testing in several places in the Old Testament. The first, or the famous, is probably is, uh, Abraham, when uh, God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. But God also tested his people, the Israelites. And one of the ways he did this was their time in the desert after being freed from slavery in Egypt. Now, some Jewish scholars actually think that this time in the desert was very formative for Egypt. God, or I'm sorry, very formative for Israel. God was shaping them, preparing them to be the people that he wants them to be. Will they be who they should be and were saved to be? Will they be true to him? God tested Israel and he might test us, but it's not the same thing as temptation. James writes that God cannot be tempted by evil because God can do no evil. He is good. Because God is good, he tests us for our good, to form us, to shape us, like Israel, to be his people. Every day we are faced with choices both large and small that can either grow us or not. And as we do that, we are able to see God's goodness and in our ability not sin. So, if God is for our good, who's responsible for our sin? James makes it pretty clear. Us. We are dragged away by our own evil desires. But we don't really like to think this way, right? Perhaps we think it's actually easier to blame God or maybe someone else, right? Uh, If my spouse wasn't so argumentative, if uh, my parents parented me differently, if my boss wasn't such a you-know-what, and so forth. But James writes, writes this brilliant metaphor about how sin is ironically lived out, and I want to spend some time exploring it. Read it with me again. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, the Jews would actually have been really familiar with this uh, progression of sin metaphor. We see it a number of times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Job, Isaiah, the Psalms, Hosea, and even in Proverbs. Now, the theme of Proverbs is wisdom and folly, if you read the book, okay? And they're personified by two women. Wisdom is, of course, personified as Lady Wisdom, and folly, which is often described as God adultery to God's commands, is Lady Lust. Now, hopefully you can tell the difference uh, between those two pictures. <laughs> Do not be tempted to Google Lady Lust on the internet. So in biblical language, lust can actually mean immoral desires, right? It doesn't always have a sexual connotation attached to it. And that's what it means here. It's an immoral desire. So both of these ladies, right, they beckon us. Okay, Lady Wisdom's like, here, take my hand, learn from me, follow me, don't be a fool. Lady Lust, on the other hand, is like, hey, come on, it'll be fun. You know it's really bad when someone, like, whispers that to you. 
And so when I follow Lady Lust and I give in to my own desire, I am dragged away or hooked. This is actually a fishing metaphor that James uses here. It's taking the bait. You are hooked like a fish. And then, let's just go there because that's what James is doing. There's an intimacy happening between me and my evil desires. I love my evil desires so much. I am completely true or faithful to my evil desire. And now, as the psalmist says, I am pregnant with sin and ready to deliver death. It's just a matter of time. And instead of producing something, you know, cute and precious and adorable, you give birth to sin, which then gives birth to death. Now, as I was studying this passage, I couldn't quite understand what James meant by death, right? After all, I sin every single day, and I think I'm still living, and you all sin too, and you're still living. So what does this actually mean? How does sin bring about death? What is the kind of death that James is talking about here? So maybe an example will help here. In the movie Star Wars, any Star Wars fans? Yeah, okay, good, good. We meet an old man named Lor Senteca, and he is determined to bring balance uh, to the force. Basically just means peace, right? To help defeat the, the notorious First Order. Now the First Order, for those of you who are Star Wars literate, just the bad guy. First, guy, first order equals bad guy. However, Tekka comes face to face with Kylo Ren, one of the antagonists of the series, an apprentice to the supreme leader of the First Order. When Kylo Ren approaches Tekka, Tekka said, or I'm sorry, when Kylo Ren approaches Tekka, he tells Tekka, look how old you've become. It's my Kylo Ren voice. Tekka, though, responds, Something far worse has happened to you. To bring some context into this conversation, we need to look at Kylo Ren's past. So Kylo Ren is actually the son of legendary characters Han Solo and Princess Leia, two prominent people who fought against and defeated the Empire in the first movie. Again, Empire bad guys. In other words, by birth, Kylo Ren is part of the good side, and his name is Ben Solo. However, through a series of events that include being swooned by the dark side and a misunderstood confrontation with his uncle, Luke Skywalker, Ben chooses to succumb and submit to those dark feelings, and as a result, he forms a group of murderous servants called the Knights of Ren, joins the dark side, and leaves trails of dead bodies and broken relationships behind. So when Tekka confronts Ben, Tekka in his old age has noticed that Ben has changed and it is not for the better. Even though Tekka is aging gracefully, something far worse has happened to young Ben. He's given into his darkness and in its place stood Kylo Ren, someone who is very much alive, but bringing about death and destruction. That's what sin does. His spirit was changed and his mind was changed. James here is using death literally and figuratively, indicating that we bring about a spiritual death as well as a natural and a physical death. 
Death ruins. Death destroys. Death brings destruction. It contaminates. It defiles. It tricks us and traps us. It makes us unlike the people God desires us to be. It is not the way that God intends us to follow. Now, while Star Wars is a fantasy, and it's a very good fantasy, think about real-life examples. Consider the gossiper who wants to tell a juicy story and ruin someone's reputation. Or the alcoholic who hides and guzzles alcohol until their body gives out. Or the person who can't stop sleeping with someone who isn't their spouse. Sin brings about consequences, and it hurts. Lady Wisdom gives actually harsh words to those who will not take her hand. Since they will not accept my advice, my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruits of their ways and be filled with the fruits of their schemes. Sin negatively impacts our bodies and our spirits. It gives birth to death due to the conscious decision in our spirit and our mind to satisfy those evil desires and live them out. When we choose evil, we are living a dead life, one void of God's love and goodness and truth, because we are no longer devoted to God and his desires. Sprinkled throughout his letter, James writes a laundry list of sins, favoritism, ignoring the poor, blasphemy, adultery, murder, a dead faith, cruel words, hypocrisy, pride, coveting, arrogance, and making oaths, just to name a few. Sin poisons our lives. These things look enjoyable and enticing and good and sometimes even justifiable, especially if you're hanging around people who are dealing with the same sins. And it might even be because you're satisfying that evil desire in that moment. But it's going to bring about death. So now what? Uh, Been kind of a bummer this morning? Well, honestly, this is kind of a big so what, right? God tests us. He doesn't tempt us. Yet we're all tempted to bring about death from our evil desires. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, if giving into our temptation leads to death, then how can we live wisely when we are tempted? I have four ideas uh, that I think might be helpful today. So we don't have to be so naive when the queen comes knocking at our door. First, repent and take responsibility. Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser says this about sin. We think of sin as mistakes. Scripture frequently thinks of them as rebellion. Which means if there's rebellion, then there needs to be repentance. James tells us each person is dragged away by their own evil desire. So don't blame God and don't blame anybody else. We don't want to admit that our sin is by choice, that we clicked the button, that we opened the bottle, or that our cruel words were just our cruel words were justified. Perhaps we want to appear better than we are and we don't want to do the hard work of honest reflection. But when we do, and we see ourselves compared to God's goodness, we can repent. Repent actually means to stop doing what you're doing, uh, change your mind, and go a different way. And in Hebrew, it actually indicates that you do something about it. It is not just about inner remorse. 
For Christians, this means saying no to sin and turning to Christ for help when the Holy Spirit convicts us, right? We have to say, this was my fault, I did this. And guys, sometimes that's just really hard. I know like when I've had to confess, and like especially when I think I shouldn't have to confess, it kind of like physically hurts to say, I'm sorry. But repentance is healing because it helps us to make things right. We don't really spend a whole lot of time confessing nowadays. Most of the time we spend time talking to God, telling him how we feel, what we think, maybe how so-and-so did us wrong, and we're upset about it, and those are all fine. But so is confession. James actually encourages us in his letter. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God's goodness doesn't excuse our sin, but by his grace, he forgives us when we confess. Number two, resist by running and reading. Probably not at the same time. One of the other questions that I had uh, while studying this passage was, what does it mean to be dragged away, right? Dragged away from what? Uh, The metaphor is implying that I'm somewhere else before I sin. Maybe somewhere safe. Is that with God? Is it with Lady Wisdom? Where is that? So for those of you who uh, fish, or maybe those of you who haven't fished, have you ever seen a fish, like, struggle for its life on a hook? Have you ever seen that? Like, it comes out and it's wiggling kind of with regret, like, rethinking its life choices. It's like, oh, man. That bait, it looks so good. It was so yummy. I took it. This is really bad. James indicates that we are likely dragged away from someplace safe, someplace good, likely on a righteous path. So in order not to end up out of the water, we need to do a few things. We have to resist the lures that look so delicious. To resist sin can mean a couple things. It can mean to stay where you are, to stay with God, to stay in righteousness. Now, when you see righteousness in the Bible, we're just talking about godly living, right? To stay there, to resist temptation. In chapter 4, James actually writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, while there is some biblical support that kind of supports demonic activity uh, playing a role in our temptation, James doesn't mention it here, and that's a big deal. James is really clear. Evil desires come from us, not God. The devil didn't make you do it, but you can resist him. Sometimes resisting looks like running away, uh, closing the laptop, walking away from a useless fight, and so forth. A really good example of this is uh, Joseph in the Old Testament. So Joseph was unfairly sold into slavery uh, by his brothers and was purchased by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar takes him to his house, uh, and scripture describes Joseph as well-built and handsome. And uh, Potiphar's wife takes notice, and she's like Lady Lush. She's like, hey. She comes on to him pretty strongly, and he has to resist her, even leaving the cloak in her hand as he runs out of the house. Resist temptation by running away. It is not cowardly. It is wise. And in order to resist well, we need to stay into scripture, to know what God expects of us as his people. 
Read your Bible. Get into a small group here at Rooftop. There are tons of them. This is what Jesus did. Not joined a small group at Rooftop. That would be crazy. I don't think I would want to go to that one. It would be pretty scary. (laughs) But when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he quoted scripture. He knew how to fight temptation with God's words and wisdom. And if he is our example on how to resist sin, then we should do the same. Number three, remember death. Now, our culture does a really bad job of uh, talking about death. It's kind of a taboo subject. Nobody really wants to talk about it. What we do want to talk about, however, is living our best life now and being true to ourselves. But James is telling us, if you're true to yourself, if you're true to your evil desires, you're like just asking for death. James wants us to remember death, to consider ruin, because it's a catalyst to keeping us away from the lore of sin. Now, it's really important to remember that temptation itself is not sinning, right? It's a gateway to it. But we still have to ask the question, when we're tempted, where is this going to lead? What is the death or the ruin that could come out of this from making this decision? What could possibly happen if I just spill one little secret or hoard all of my money? Where is that lusty lady really leading? Have you thought about what your temptations are? Have you thought about what it is that might ruin you? What do you have trouble saying no to? Now, you might be thinking, well, if I just cover up my tracks, I can, you know, get away with it, then I'm fine. If I just erase my browser history, I'm fine. It's just one meeting with a super cute coworker. Now, you might think that, but it only makes it easier to do it again and again and again. And friends, God's word doesn't lie. You will accept the consequences in some way. And not just consequences for you, but for those who love you. Remember that giving into temptation creates conflict for the people around you. When you sin, mistrust, bitterness, resentment are all introduced into your relationships. And now people have to work through those to restore what was ruined. Finally, remember redemption. Let's end on a high note. There is probably no place in my life where I have seen temptation and sin than when I got married and had kids. I had no idea I could be so selfish, so apt to want to get my way, so mean, until I started having a family. And I was like, why is God continuing to be so good to me when all I do is fail? But... Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we have been redeemed and rescued from the power of sin. We're not to take the fruit, but we are to be the fruit. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 18, which which is just a couple of verses later. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, in the Old Testament, these first fruits were an offering to God, a gift to God, signaling uh, that the Israelites understood that God had ownership over the earth. They were from the first harvest. If I'm going to live a life that is wholly devoted to God, I need to offer myself to him first. 
This means I can't, you know, sleep around with somebody who isn't my spouse or, you know, be envious of somebody who has great grass or a new car or lie when it's beneficial for me. I shouldn't bring forth death when I'm devoted to a God who is life-giving. While first fruits means offering ourselves to God, we do so with the purpose of bringing a taste of God's kingdom, his love and his goodness and his truth into the world for people who need to know Christ. In Christ, we are reborn, not from intimacy with sin, but by God's grace. And we are to be the first fruits. Are we living like this is true? Are we living like the redeemed? Are we living as good fruit, bringing goodness and truth and love into the world? In Hebrew, the word true actually means faithfulness or fidelity to something. When God tests us, will we be found to be true to his desires or to our own evil desires? Now, when we give in to sin and temptation, sometimes there are moments where we dwell too much on our failures. I know I have felt this in my own life. And in some cases, weeping over sin is actually what we're called to do. James says so in his letter. But giving into despair is not consistent with the life that God desires for us. When we sin, God offers us grace. He doesn't tempt us. He forgives us. Paul echoes this grace in his uh, book in Romans. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And while we do have some control and responsibility over our own temptations, we can't do it all the time, which is why Jesus did it for us. In Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus in the garden praying to God before his arrest and execution. Where have we seen someone tempted and tested in a garden before? In Genesis. Adam and Eve in the garden, tempted and tested by the fruit and rebelling, looking to their own desires and introducing a curse into our world. But Jesus, in the garden, despite his temptations and his trials and his testing, remained true to God's good desire because he knew that it would give life. Our life. On the third Sunday of every month here at Rooftop, we do communion. Communion uh, is a symbolic reenactment of who we are as God's people and why we are who we are. We are his family, his adopted children, gathered around the dinner table in celebration of his love. When we eat from the bread, we're reminded of Christ's body, which was broken for us. And when we drink from the cup, which is from fruit, we are reminded of his blood that was spilled for us. Communion also reminds us that we are redeemed. We were purchased with his blood to be the fruit, to give those who don't know Jesus a taste of God's kingdom in the world. So if you would, take out your communion cup, peel back the top layer, removing the wafer. Consider the words of Jesus who said, take and eat, this is my body. Now peel back the second layer. 
considering again the words of Jesus. This is my blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord, we mess up. And it is not just a mistake, it's rebellion. It's looking to our desire, it's saying no to you, and yes to us. And it hurts us, and it makes us unlike the people that you desire us to be. It is not living life abundantly, it is not really living. We ask that you help us remember this, that you help us remember that your Holy Spirit will convict us uh, when we sin, that we can turn around, that we can say yes to you anytime. And you will always be there to offer your forgiveness to us. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your truth and your goodness and your love and your acceptance of us. We're going to close our prayer by praying the Lord's Prayer together. A prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. A prayer that showcases God's goodness. The words will be up on the screen for those of you who need them. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.